Welcome to Heartside Chats. This is Dr. Chelsea Wakefield in conversation with my friend, Lisa Stutzman Graves. And we are talking about all things related to life, love, and the pursuit of consciousness. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy. Lisa. Hey, Chelsea. So today we're going to talk about curiosity. And I consider curiosity to be one of the most profound human capacities that we can develop. Well, yeah, I remember uh, at the beginning of Labyrinth of Love, I can't remember who said this, but um, when conflict starts, you want to be curious, not furious. Yes, that's my favorite Ellen Bader quote. I love that. Move from furious to curious. It, It sure is the answer to a lot of things. I was going to read a quote, if that's okay with you, Chelsea, that I really liked at the beginning of this chapter from Jung. It's, to ask the right question is already half the solution of the problem. Yes, because the question points us in a certain direction. It causes us to look at something. And often those somethings are hidden in the shadows. They're just not immediately evident. But once they become more visible, it tends to change the whole context of something. And I like how you talk about in a relationship, if we treat it as an anthropology study. Yes. When I was in college, I studied anthropology and I thought I almost became an anthropologist because I thought that it would be so cool to go to a culture and to live with the people and really learn from the inside out what what everything meant in that culture rather than sort of projecting from the outside. So I really do think that in a relationship, oftentimes we think we understand each other, but we don't really understand each other until we cross the bridge into the other person's world and really learn about their formation and how they operate over there and the eyes that they're looking out of over there. And then we begin to understand each other. I liken it to going into somebody else's ecosystem, uh, For instance, when I go to visit my son and his wife, I'm in their ecosystem. I'm not in my ecosystem. And it is kind of like being in an anthropology study. Yes, it is, because people can operate very differently. Yeah. Even our children. (laughs) We raise them, but they're different. (laughs) Very much so. And I I do think it's really hard. I mean, you know, in healthy days when everything's going great, you know, we can certainly be curious and not furious, but when you're in the the heat of mad, it's hard to pause and ask those questions and calm down. And It really is. It really is. And, you know, it's interesting you should talk about that because I was in a bit of a mood this morning. And finally, Tom and I just, we went and took a walk. We went, we got outside. We got underneath the beautiful sky today. It's gorgeous weather. And we took a walk. And by the time we got back, I was okay. But I was definitely kind of all in a tangle about, I didn't even know what I was in a tangle about, but I was just irritable. And uh, anyway, yeah. And you know what's so nice about that is I think Tom understands me enough to know that when I get that way, it's, it's like, take her for a walk, get her outside. Shift, it's about shifting states. What do you, I'm just curious, what do you, I mean, we've got a bunch to talk about today, but just in a nutshell, I'm sure you've had plenty of um, clients that, what do you tell them when, do you just tell them to pause and, and to 
or to regroup when they get into this point and they're just not even curious? They're just so furious? Well, that concept hasn't even occurred to most people. And so if I'm doing a session with them, I'll jump in and I'll say, let me, let me help you out here. And then I'll just kind of redirect the conversation into something that is more of a learning conversation than an argument or a countering, you know, you did this, well, you did that. Um, the, the competition for who's more hurt. Um, yeah, so I, I, I do a lot of redirecting with people when I work with them initially. And then eventually they start to experience something different as they're being redirected. And then they get, then they get curious about what this is and how do, we, how do we duplicate this at home? How do we do this at home? So it takes a while to learn to pause. It takes a lot of self-awareness. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like you have to tune into yourself and figure out when you're not okay. And when you're not okay, you go do your personal work or you take a walk or you do something to shift your state so that you're not operating out of a complex. And then you have to, after reading your book, I realized not only I have to figure out what state I'm in, but what state is he in? Yes, because we all get caught up in stuff. We get activated and we get tangled up in complexes. And, you know, the thing about that is, what's sad about that is when you're in a complex, you can't be present. You're not really in the moment. You're not really with the person you're with. You're all caught up in whatever the storm that's going on inside of you. And that's why it's so important for us to do our personal work, because if we can't learn how to get out of that inner storm, then we really aren't together. We're not being present to each other and we don't get the rewards of the joy of being present. Now, when you say personal work, just for our listeners out there, are you referring to things like journaling, going out in nature, going to see a therapist? Tell, give us examples of personal work. Yes, all of those qualify. I think that I write about this in the book, actually. It, it, it's in the begin within section, one of those exercises. And it talks about when you start feeling a little off, just pay attention, learn to pay attention to when you're feeling off. And if you're off, then go get quiet somewhere and just sit with yourself and ask yourself, what is going on with me at this moment? Why am I so riled up? Why am I so sad? What, you know, what's happening? And it really helps to locate where you're feeling that in your body. Because if you do a body scan, you'll notice that whatever it is that's going on with you is located somewhere in your body. And there's an emotion attached to it, but there's also a bunch of memories attached to it. So if you can take a little time and tune in to this, you know, is, is it like a tightness in my chest? Is it a knot in my stomach? Is it tense, you know, I'm tense in my shoulders. I've got sort of a feeling like a vice around my head or, my legs want to run or what's going on. And then just tune into that and listen to it speak and stay with it and just stay with it quietly and let, notice what, what memories and what associations happens with that. Because you'll get a lot of insight by tuning into the body. The body has a lot of wisdom. And if that's hard to do, if you go and you work with a therapist that does some sort of an embodied practice like EMDR or somatic experiencing or brain spotting, something that has to do with working with the memories that are held in the body. 
you'll notice that you start to just be calmer as you're moving through life. Less, you, you get less activated by stuff. Things that used to bother you don't bother you anymore when you do that kind of work. That's right. And it, it can spill over in all areas of your life, not just your personal relationship. Absolutely. Work, Every area. Your children. Yep. Driving in the car. <laughs> Road rage. Eating ice cream. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> I love in the book when you talk about it, it would be wise of us to know our per, our partner's emotional raw spots um, and that we tend to love people the way that we like to be loved rather than the way that they need to be loved. Yes. And there's two parts of that. And the first is that if you look, many people know their partner's raw spots and they call that, I know how to push your buttons. <laughs> um, yeah, I can really stir you up. I know where your raw spots are. You know, if we're in some sort of a slogging fight, um, I can just really kind of aim at those sensitive spots. But if you're trying to, to love someone and be compassionate to learn where they have vulnerabilities, then you protect those and you, you don't go after them. Um, those are bad relationships where people... Well, another way to say that would be um, playing fair. Uh, I think it's playing fair, but I think it's also just really continuing to be loving even when you're really riled up. You just don't go after the raw spots. You know that that's, it's, it, as they say, below the belt. It's not okay. Yeah, that's what I was getting at, below the and belt. The second part of that, which is really interesting, is uh, I recently did a presentation at the Veterans Association on the five love languages. And those, the love languages, uh, this is a really a quite famous book by Gary Chapman. And mm -hmm. so the five love languages are uh, touch, words of affirmation, special time, acts of service, and gifts. And the thing about those five love languages, I actually think there's more than five, but I love the categories that Gary Chapman put together. Um, is that we tend, like, let's say that my love language was acts of service, you know, like cooking, working, taking care of stuff, errands, things like that. And my partner's love language was touch or words of affirmation. I meet couples all the time that are mismatched like that. And one will say to the other, you don't love me. You never say, I love you, or I appreciate you, or you're wonderful, so you clearly don't love me. And the other person might say, I know you don't love me because you never hug me. <laughs> you never kiss me, you know, when you're leaving and arriving home. Or the other person might say, what are you talking about? I never love you. I work from morning to night to support this family. You know, so there's these misses that people have in terms of how they love each other, how they show their love. And they don't always realize that the other person is it's put together differently. So I always tell people that acts of love are defined by the recipient. So I guess in that instance, you would be curious and you would ask them, or they may not even know what their love language is. How would you find out? Good question. Good question. Observe so, them? Yeah, somebody, that's exactly how you find out, is you, you observe them. So for instance, let's say that let's say I'm curious about what my partner's love language is and I don't know. And so what I start to do is I start to use affirming words, appreciative words, telling them how much I care for them and the ways in which they're special to me. And I speak them and I just watch whether they light up 
Or maybe what I do is I escalate my hugging or my affection or my sexuality or something and I watch whether that person lights up. Or I will spend more time with them, special time, give them like, you know, really blocks of time that is just devoted to them and see if they that really makes them happy. I think if you watch people, you can learn a lot about them because you just watch where they get happy. Yeah, I like what you're saying, Chelsea, and it kind of reminds me of, you know, years ago when I lived in New Orleans and I first started my media career, I used to love to go sit somewhere and just people watch. And that's all back, excuse me, to what you're saying in Labyrinth of Love in that uh, it's an anthropology study. And if you just watch people enough, your loved ones, your family, you'll figure out what their love language is. Mm -hmm. And what lights them up. And even in terms of parenting, you can tell who your kids are becoming because there are things that they're drawn to and things that light them up. And it may not be what you think should light them up. You talk about several things on the, in the curiosity chapter, and I'm just going to read them out and we can discuss each one individually. And honestly, I've never heard these terms, but they kind of make sense to me. There is the what happened argument, shadow boxing, the overstory and understory, and people are not projections. So I know that's a lot. I'll let you pick where you want to go with that. But uh, it was interesting to read about all that. Yeah. So let's start with, uh, what was the first one again? The what happened argument. That one makes pretty sense to me. Okay, so we can start with the what happened argument. So the thing about the what happened argument is that people remember things differently and they're thoroughly convinced that their version is the true version. And the truth of it is that the way we remember things is based on what we're attending to that we think is important or what had emotional energy. So if somebody's talking to us about, you know, some sort of a topic and suddenly they come to something that causes us to feel a little emotional, we'll tend to remember that more than we, we would other parts of the conversation that were not that interesting to us. And so the other part of memory is that because we have gaps in our memory, when we remember things, we go into those gaps and we fill them in with stuff that makes sense to us. <laughs> So that's called confabulation. I love that word, confabulation. It's different than lying. It's just making stuff up. And we're just thoroughly convinced that that's exactly what happened. So people will get into arguments all the time about what you said and what you meant and what you did. And then they'll argue over that. And the, it's, it's a total waste of time. So it's a really good idea to start with what is your memory of that conversation or what is your memory of what happened at that party or, you know, with our kids or what's your memory? And then not to argue with the memory, but to move forward into what it is we're trying to accomplish here. Are we trying to resolve something for the future? Are we, was there a hurt that happened that we need more information about? What is it that we're talking about here? We're not, you know, to get our arguing over what happened doesn't actually move anything forward. That's about the what happened and the argument and, and the movement to curiosity. I've started uh, when my husband and I are talking or even we're on the verge of conflict, I repeat back so that I make sure I understood what was said or what went on. Good practice. So that I'm clear. Um, yeah. Tell us about um, shadow boxing. 
Shadow boxing, well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about shadow. Shadow is a, a concept that I really started to become more familiar with in studying the work of Carl Jung. And essentially what shadow is, is material in us that is outside of our awareness. It's in the shadows. So this is not stuff that we know about ourselves, but we don't like. This is stuff that we've so so disowned that it, we are not even aware that it's in operating in us. And we all have got stuff that is outside of our awareness. And a lot of those, so for example, in shadow boxing, what's happening is it's a circular, it's a circular thing. And I should post this in the show notes um, where I do something, I do something and it hits a nerve in my partner and my partner doesn't even know what that nerve is about. It's something from their history that is sensitive. Um, and suddenly they're operating out of a complex and they're reacting to me. Now they're not present anymore. They're not in present time. They're, the past has in, influenced the present and they're operating out of that reactivity. And I might then, you know, that hits my complex and I'm upset about it because what I said had nothing to do with the reaction. And now I'm upset about the reaction. So I'm reacting to the reaction. And now I'm no longer present. And then I react out of that. And this can get to be this circular thing where we just wind each other up and it escalates and it gets worse and worse. And we're not even aware of what it is that we're arguing about. People will tell me that all the time. They'll say, we were arguing about the stupidest thing. I can't even remember what it was about, but it was to this vicious argument. And that's shadow boxing. That's a deep one. I, I, and just, I, the way I'm interpreting that is that could get into your inner cast of characters, for sure. Y I would think. Yes. Yes. That's, you know, some little rogue self in there that's gotten activated, you know, just stuff that's just outside of our awareness that gets us out of the present moment and into a bad state of being and relating. On the under overstory and understory, I'm going to use an example that I personally went through and you just tell me if I'm on the right track in understanding this. So you write in your book, becoming intimate with one's beloved involves understanding their history and formation, their tender places and the defensive complexes that are likely to activate them. So my husband and I broke down his family home in Memphis several months ago, and I noticed that he just was not himself after a day of being there at all. And I realized then that there was an overstore and understore, if I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, that he was getting activated all over the place just being in his parents' old house that he grew up in. Yes. And if you had been upset with him for being in a mood, that would have been not very relational because it makes sense to me that when we go back to our, our parents' house and clean out the parents' house, we get pretty activated about a lot of stuff. And with all the understory and all the material there that we're you know encountering the stuff and the memories and, and a lot of feelings, a lot of stuff that's lodged in the body and that's a hard thing to do to clean out your parents' house. So, yeah. So that would go back to what you were talking about, about the memory cells and how things like uh, EMDR and somatic tracking. Is that the right word? Somatic, somatic tracking? Experiencing. Somatic experience and brain spotting would be a good way to help you get rid of those 
emotional memories, correct? Yes. I'm understanding it all. Yes. Well, see, the thing about doing uh, some sort of somatic work, not just talk therapy, but really something that works with the brain and the body, is that so many of those memories are outside of awareness. They really are stored in, I mean, we talk about how they're stored in the body. They're actually stored in the neural networks. And when something in the present is similar to something in the past, that little file cabinet opens and the neurochemicals of adrenaline and cortisol start coming into your body. And before you know it, you're upset. You don't even know why. I love in the book where you talk about who is interacting with who uh, and that there are two intercast of characters. And we kind of touched on that earlier in this, but, you know, to be mindful of, for instance, when we were breaking down my parents' I mean, my husband's parents' house in Memphis, I could tell he was going into a a younger child version of himself. He just was not himself. Well, he actually was himself. He was just himself in a younger version. And instead of getting into my rebel woman stance, like you're not going to talk to me that way, I got curious. And you put on your translation ears. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was just so polar opposite of the way he normally is. Yes. Well, when you say he wasn't himself, he was in a dimension of himself that was less pleasant to be with. He was more of a teenager. Yeah. A teenager. Yeah. I mean, I literally remember one moment in his mother's kitchen where he just turned around and I don't even remember what he said, but it was just like a teenager would say. Yeah. Uh, And I think you and your husband do this. Uh, Can you come back in another version of you? (laughs) Well, that's when we're kind of in a healthy enough place to be self-aware and to be able to shift states. But there are times, I mean, I, I think that there are times in our lives with our partners over a long stretch of time. When we give them kind of a dispensation, it's, it's, it's like, you know, a little bit of a pass for being in bad behavior because we realize that what's going on in their life is so significant that they can't be their best self. You know, and I, I'm, you know, just thinking back in, in my 32 year marriage that there's been periods of time when, uh, when we've both done that, when we've been going through the death of a parent or, uh, you know, Tom had cancer a while ago, and while he was being treated for cancer, he was not in his best self, very vulnerable, and no. as was I. But, you know, I wasn't expecting him to be present in the way he typically is during that period of time. Yeah. I love also in the book, and I, I honestly think our world could use more of this, is don't make assumptions, you know, about what your partner is saying or feeling or even the way you're reading them sometimes, ask them for clarification. Yes, yes. And we, the whole world would be a better place if we would just make fewer assumptions and be a little bit more curious about what it is that the person is intending, maybe not even how they're communicating it, but where are they going with all of this? What do they want? What are the, I mean, that's how we actually get to common values or common goals. We, we may have different roads to get there, But if we figure out what it is that we're trying to accomplish and we can listen deeply enough to where the other person is coming from, oftentimes we can say, oh, you've covered part of the picture and I'm covering a different part of the picture. And let's collaborate instead of argument. You're arguing and power struggling. Yeah, I love this. Um, 
when we get triggered, we immediately start spinning stories. Mm-hmm. We want to get an explanation for what is happening and what we should do. We spin stories in our head, and then we project them out. And God forbid if we should get on the phone and call a good friend or a relative to talk to them about it, they're probably going to give more ammunition. That's not a good that's idea. That's a terrible idea because then that person believes that that's what's really going on. Right. Yeah. Right. That's also called triangulation. That's pulling in a third person rather than dealing directly with the problem person, which is something that people do a lot because it really does relieve tension to talk to a third person. But it doesn't necessarily solve the problem with the first person, and it can actually create another problem. It's kind of like when you when you call your best friend and complain about your husband, and then your best friend starts to hate your husband, <laughs> and you don't, and you love your husband, but you're always calling your friend and talking about the things that aggravate you. So they get a false impression. They don't really get the whole story. Yeah. And that can happen with anybody, not just your partner. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just not wise to get on the phone and vent or social media. Absolutely. And people do it all the time on social media. Social media has just become a very dangerous thing. You also go into this chapter about um, some inner work that people can do. We've talked briefly about the somatic tracking, tra- I'm sorry, tracking, but I love the, uh, the dream work and um, the reparative resourcing. Can you talk more about that for us? So I'm going to talk a little bit about how dreams can actually inform our relationship world. And I'm going to use an example that's in the book where, um, so we moved into our present house about, this was, the, this was maybe about, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago. And the boxes that came from Tom's office were still sitting in his office unpacked, uh, packed. I mean, they were just like cluttering up stacked up inside of his office. And I finally walked in. I think we'd been here maybe about four years. And I said to him, you know, if something happens to you, I'm just going to take these boxes to the dump. I'm not even going to open them because obviously they don't don't mean anything to you because they're just sitting around here. I was aggravated because they hadn't been unpacked yet. Four years. I thought that was a long enough time. And so this is the dream he has that night at which he tells me the following morning. Now, he was not telling me this dream to tell me the impact I had had on him, but I heard it. So here's the dream. There is a festival on the seashore in a town and the bulldozers are coming to take down all these buildings that were being used for this festival. And my husband is running around looking for the mayor because he believes (laughs) that these buildings could be repurposed and used for something rather than destroyed. And he's trying to find the mayor to stop this destruction of the bulldozers. And so he tells me this dream in the morning because he knows I love to hear his dreams and it's one of the ways that we connect. And so I'm, I hear it and I don't associate it with my comment about throwing all the boxes out, but then I'm driving to work and all of a sudden a light bulb comes on. And I realize that must be how his inner child felt when I said, I'm just going to throw these boxes out. Obviously, they don't mean anything to you. Like I was the bulldozer. And so I, I went back home that night and I said, Tom, I'm really sorry for saying that. And I realized that really what he wanted was for me to sit with him and give him special time, the gift of special time. Acts of service. Acts of service and special time to help him go through those boxes. And so I set aside a few weekends to just sit with him as he slowly unpacked like his business career and all this memorabilia from, cause he was a marathon runner. And he told me stories about running and he told me stories about presentations he had made, marketing presentations. 
and he told me stories about all sorts of things that I, some of which I'd heard before and some of which I'd never heard. And the point of it was for me just to be present and to keep him company while he was unpacking the boxes. And that was an act of love on my part. Um, and I was willing to do it once I, once a light bulb went on, you know, about why he'd never opened the boxes. He didn't want to, it was just a little bit too much for him to do alone. That's sweet. That's sweet that you did that. Yeah, it was, it, it was an extension because, you know, as I said earlier, I have a lot going on and I didn't want to sit there and do that. But then I realized that that was an act of love. It was a way I could show him I loved him that would land over there for him. And so I did it. And I'm glad I did. This is a, a totally random question, but have you two ever in your, I think it's 30 years of marriage? 32, yeah. Ever had a situation that you're dealing with where you both are given a dream? No, we haven't had that happen, but that does happen with some couples. That sort of coordinated dreaming, it does happen. And... Um, What's interesting about Tom is that Tom is ne not necessarily a dream worker. He's not as interested in dreams as I am. But see, this is this is his act of love. He shares his dreams with me because he knows I love to hear them. Not because, I mean, this is not something he's ever done in his life. But he knows that it makes me happy when he shares his dreams with me. And it's a, it's a, it's sort of a, it's, it's an intimacy thing, you know, like mm -hmm. when somebody shares yeah. their dreams with you, it's, it's letting you into the inside of their psyche. So, so it's not like, Hey, I went to the grocery store today and, uh, the, the tub is broken. He's really talking to you in a meaningful connected way and something that interests you. Right. Right. And, and speaking of um, love languages, one of the things that he does that is part of his, he's a big gift giver. And so if he's in the store or something and he sees a muffin or something that he thinks I might like or a dessert, he'll bring it home. And I'm not always happy about the bringing home of desserts because I'm trying to cut down on sugar. But that is, he's, he thinks this is a sweet thing to do. So I try to take it in the spirit that it's given. Oh, yeah. that's very nice. I'm just reading some more of my notes. This, there was so much in this chapter that I just, wow. Uh, I love in the summary notes where you talk about activation is an invitation. And that, that to me goes along with the uh, be curious, not furious. Yes. When we get riled up, when we get activated, when we get upset or sad or confused or any of those deep emotions, it's time to kind of it's begin within. Take a look, like what's going on with me or what's going on with my partner if they get activated. Yeah. Like, why are you not like what's wrong with you? But right. wow, what's going on that you would be this activated about whatever it is that's happening here? And then you touched on this beginning within and doing your own work and then coming back to each other. Yeah. Once you've done your own work. That's how you get to a soulful relationship is when each person is doing their personal work and then coming back with realizations and growth into the relationship. And so you're both growing together. You're getting more and more insight. You're working together towards what I like to call the compelling vision of who we can be together. And I love, love, love this. Every couple um, has these. The places where you trigger each other, pay attention. Partners who are seeking to become more self-aware can interrupt these difficult dynamics and create exit ramps off 
the conflict highway. Yes, yes. Wow. Yeah, to create an exit ramp off the conflict highway. And the way that you do that is after you've done your own personal work, you can come back together with your partner and you can say, you know, I, I really don't like what happens to us when we get into this thing, whatever it is. Or, you know, when we interact or when we talk about this or every time we discipline the kids or try to plan a vacation, we, we get into a thing with each other. Let's sit down and figure out what it is, what's happening. What's the shadow boxing? What's the shadow dance that we're doing there? And let's figure out how we cannot go to that awful place that we've gone to in the past where it just devolves into really unpleasant interaction. Let's find an exit ramp off that conflict highway. I love that analogy. I think people can totally understand that. Yep. I love that. That's how you build a great relationship. I'm just gleaning so much, Chelsea. Thank you so much. Remind us uh, if people have questions and they want to email us questions that we can discuss in the podcast where they should email them to. Yes, heartsidechats at gmail.com. And we love having the questions that come in and give us a five-star rating so our podcast can uh, disseminate to a wider audience. That'd be great. And thank you so much for all of you who are hanging in with us and being our listeners. And one last thing, on your website, you've just uploaded a class for couples. Do you want to talk just a brief second about that? Sure. Yes, uh, I have a, a class there, an online class called Love Strategies for Stronger Relationships. So if you go to my website, chelseawakefield.com, that is available under courses. And this is something that you and your partner can do together. You can do it at your own pace, uh, but a little tiny little packet of information will arrive every three days. And, you know, you can take longer than 40 days to do the class. But um, if you do that, if you do something every three days, it will create a momentum between the two of you. And the material is, uh, well, there's some of the material that's in the book. There's some additional material that's not in the book that you will enjoy learning about. There's lots of good handouts and you can pause it, study it, rewind it. That's right. That's right. Thank you for all you do, Chelsea. You're welcome. And thanks for Thanks for being my friend and having these conversations with me. And uh, we'll, we'll be together in the next episode. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Heartside Chats. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating. That will help to elevate the podcast so that others can benefit from the content. If you have a relationship question or would like to communicate thoughts and feelings about anything we talked about today, consider sending us an email at heartsidechats at gmail.com. I also have a public Facebook group you can join called Heartside Chats. Thanks for listening.